Let me go ahead and jump right in. Um, Again, this is Easter. Uh, Those of you who are here this morning, most of you understand what we're here for. Um, We're really here um, to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Now, let me clarify really quickly. We have a room full of people who have PhDs that teach at Shorter and who teach at Barry. We have a room full of MDs who are working at various hospitals. We have people with master's degrees and other people who are in education. We've got, uh, you know, sharp business people. We've got all sorts of folks in here. And let me just clarify this. Um, We don't just believe in some sort of a symbolic resurrection, but we actually believe in the physical, actual, historical resurrection of Christ. And so you just need to know that that's where we're coming from today, Um, that, that those of us in this room that are members of Seven Hills Fellowship believe that that physical, historical resurrection really occurred and that it really matters. So uh, without further ado, let me take a moment. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this day. Um, I thank you for drawing these people, the people that are here today, into this place. And Father, I pray, as always, that um, we wouldn't be able to leave uh, this place today without having had an encounter with you. I pray that that would be true for all of us. And so, Father, regardless of what we do with you pursuing us or with that encounter, Father, I pray that, that you would be here and, uh, and that, again, nobody would be able to leave this morning without having felt uh, your presence, your drawing upon them. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So one of the things that I have to do professionally is uh, I have to surf the web and read books and read magazines and read the paper because I'm kind of always looking for illustrations for things. So I actually need to do that, right? So if you ever, you know, come up to me and I'm in Starbucks and I'm, you know, scanning through CNN or reading weird articles, it's because I'm looking for illustrations. So I ran across an interesting uh, story this week on a very credible and amazing website called Ranker.com. Maybe you guys have heard of Ranker. I'm not a big internet guy, but anyway. But uh, it's called Ranker Vote on Everything, and it's where you put up a topic, and then people sort of vote by, you know, popular response, and sort of then they list and rank sort of answers in the response. So the article that I read this week was called Celebrities Nobody Cares About Anymore. Celebrities Nobody Cares About Anymore. And just automatically, as I say that, you're in your, ma- your mind, you're already like clicking through names, like, oh yeah, so-and-so. Anyway. So I, I, did, I sort of stuck to the top 20. They went all the way like into the hundreds, but I stopped uh, in the top 20, and I just sort of pick and chose a few different people. But the first person, number one on the list, this is the most uh, sort of uh, irrelevant of all of the actors or actresses that are out there, is a guy named Steven Seagal. So we got Steven's picture up here. I feel bad for him. He's like a kung fu action guy. I couldn't name a single movie that he was in, but I know who he was like from the maybe the you know, mid to late 80s. But Steven Seagal, poor guy is a celebrity that nobody cares about anymore. In fact, he is the celebrity that nobody cares about anymore. Next on the list is number three, Nicolas Cage. Again, it's funny. I don't know how many movies he's been in, but like every other movie on Netflix is a Nicolas Cage movie. You ever noticed that before? It's really amazing. He, I know he did National Treasure, and that was great. All right, he's number three. Number five on the list is Eddie Murphy. Here, here we have Eddie. I know, what a bummer. Who knew that he was so irrelevant? Anyway, I mean, he was in Shrek, Beverly Hills Cop. He played Buckwheat on Saturday Night Live. I mean, he has all sorts of great stuff. But apparently, most of America thinks he's relatively irrelevant. All right, number 13 is Meg Ryan. All right, here's a picture of Meg. I know, what a bummer. Again, it gets, it's, it's becoming sad. It's a bad illustration. I'm sorry. Anyway, 
Meg Ryan was in Sleepless in Seattle. When Harry met Sally, you've got mail. I mean, she's like this, you know, sweetheart, kind of heartthrob person, maybe from the 90s, I suppose, more than anything else. But according to Ranker, she's relatively irrelevant. Number 18, Mike Myers. You guys remember Mike Myers? Uh, he was in Shrek, Austin Powers, Wayne's World. I mean, come on. How, that, that's not irrelevant. That's incredibly relevant. Number 19, Demi Moore, right? Poor Demi. She was in St. Elmo's Fire, in Ghost, A Few Good Men, and yet irrelevant. Number 19. Number 20 on the list, and we, I just decided to stop here, is Kevin Costner. So Kevin Costner played, you know, in Robin Hood, Dances with Wolves, The Bodyguard, the list goes on and on. He also has quite a few Netflix movies, so anyway. So the question, or what this, this poll, you can go ahead and take that down, Sam. But the question this poll is getting at is really um, not only who are actors or actresses that people don't care about anymore, but it's also a question of relevance or irrelevance. You know, in other words, like, which of these actors are kind of just irrelevant these days? And uh, the answer is clearly that some of these actors and actresses are no longer particularly relevant, right? I think it's um, very justifiable on the day of Easter, the day of the resurrection of Christ, that we ask that same question, which is, is the resurrection still relevant? Is it relevant today, right? What a lot of people will tell you, people who you know, claim to be Christians, people who claim to be sort of religious, spiritual people, they'll say, what matters isn't whether Christ physically rose from the dead or not. What matters is just sort of the spiritual idea of resurrection and new birth and new life. That's what really matters. And yet, I think the Bible's very clear whether it's Paul or Jesus himself, that the resurrection is, uh, is massively relevant, that it does still matter today. We're going to actually look at a passage of Scripture, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, that talks very much about and pictures very much that relevance of the resurrection. And really, the main character in this story is a woman named Mary Magdalene. So let's take a moment, enter into verse 1 of John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. And so very quickly, let me just set the stage here, Mary Magdalene's response is not, he is risen, he is risen indeed, but rather she runs back to the other disciples proclaiming, someone has taken his body, right? It's a tragedy. Something terrible has happened. And the reason I make this point is because I've often heard this passage preached as hopeful, as if the disciples were expecting Jesus to rise from the dead, like, yes, but that's not at all the case. They weren't, as we'll see later in this passage. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, right? Were they running in anger? right, trying to find who did this in fear and disgust. We're not told, we don't know, but they're running to the tomb. It says, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Now, two things really quickly. Most church fathers and theologians have argued that John, who is writing this um, gospel, and in this case is the other disciple being talked about here, was the younger of the two, and therefore he was faster. That may or may not be true, although I guarantee you um, Josh Tolman is younger than I am, and if we raced a 100-yard dash right now, I think I'd beat him, right? So that's not necessarily the case, but it may be, may be true. 
You can tell Josh I said that, by the way, if he's not here this morning. Number two, I think we do, what we do see in this passage is that Peter's personality to some degree is on display. And it's on display in the sense that, you know, John comes down, he gets there first, and he comes to the tomb, and he's almost waiting, kind of peering in, and Peter, as he is wont to do, just barges right past John and into the tomb. It says this, it says he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, this is interesting detail, first-person narrative detail that we see this description of the scene. Now, some have argued, some people have argued that grave robbers would have taken Jesus' body, but if that was the case, then the Roman guards would have been executed for allowing that. So it's doubtful that grave robbers actually took Jesus' body. Again, I don't think the centurions would have let that happen. Two, grave robbers wouldn't have left the linen behind. It was incredibly valuable, right? Others have argued that the Romans or the Jews might have taken the body, but if so, neither the Romans nor the Jews would have taken Jesus' body out of the grave clothes. That wouldn't have made sense. And then verse 7 literally says that the face cloth having been folded up. In other words, that this face cloth was separate from the other cloths and had been folded up. So if you steal a body, not only do you not take the time to take the body out of the grave clothes, but you don't take the time to fold the head cloth and put it aside. When the Jews and the Romans realized that the Christians were claiming that Jesus rose from the dead, as soon as that would have happened, if they had taken the body, surely they would have brought out Jesus' body to dispel those rumors, and yet there's no record of them doing that whatsoever. Something happened 2,000 years ago. Verse 8. Finally, the other disciple, again, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. Now, this is tricky because elsewhere in John especially, whenever you see those two terms, saw and believed, saw and believed, it usually is in reference to faith and this is debated here what is intended, but in verse 9, it seems to indicate that he and the other disciples and Mary Magdalene didn't believe Jesus had rose, risen from the dead, but rather they believed that somebody had taken the body. We don't exactly know. But again, listen to verse 9. Verse 9 says this, and this is again John writing, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, right? Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying, As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, as I usually point out, we can't focus on every single truth from this passage, and there are actually lots of big ideas here that we could dig down into, and so we're really only going to be able to focus on one, and so forgive me for that, 
but I'd love to chat with you afterwards about other things from this passage if you'd like. The main thing I want to drill down into this passage is this idea of hope, this idea of whether or not the resurrection is relevant. And I think what we see in this passage and in many other passages of Scripture is that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are without hope. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're without hope. Listen to verse 10 and verse 11. It says, Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying, right? She just stood there and wept. Of course, she's crying. The followers of Jesus had placed all their hopes on Jesus as the Messiah. The Bible makes it clear that they did not expect Jesus to die, much less to rise from the dead. They'd seen him perform miracle after miracle, and they believed that he was the Messiah who was going to overthrow Roman rule, right, over the Jews, and to replace the unjust religious structure of the Pharisees. They had placed all their hopes on Jesus, and now he was dead and he was gone, and their hopes had died and gone with him. Of course, Mary was hopeless. If Jesus died and did not rise from the dead, she should be hopeless. She should be, and so should we. Elsewhere, Paul writes about this hopelessness if Christ didn't rise from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, "'For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile,' right? It's, it's meaningless. "'You're still in your sins. Those, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost.'" And so not only is there no hope for you, there's no hope for your loved ones, Right? If only for this life we have hope in Christ, in other words, if it's only for today, if it's only for this life, we are to be pitied more than all men, right? If our hope is just for this life and there's no actual reality of the resurrection and hope of the resurrection for us, then we're fools, right? We are, we're wasting our lives, right? We're wasting our money, we're wasting our time, we're wasting our energy on something that is a lie. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? If if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it's hopeless. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are to be pitied. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then let's eat and let's drink, let's be hedonists because we're going to die soon, and we need to take advantage of the pleasures of this life while we still can because this is all there is. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we, you and me, we are without It's hopeless. If Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead, then we are without hope. However, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then we should be the most hopeful people in the world. That's the second thing I think we see in this passage of Scripture and elsewhere. Let's look at verse 13. They, that is the angels, asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus, and it doesn't tell us why. Maybe she wasn't expecting to see Jesus, and so sort of like when I'm, you know, at Swift and Finch or Starbucks, and I'm kind of looking off in the distance, sometimes I look right through somebody I know. Maybe that's what happened here. Or maybe the resurrection body has some level of continuity, but also some level of discontinuity, and so Jesus didn't quite look like himself. Maybe, and maybe most likely, Mary was crying And I don't know about the last time you cried, but it's real hard to see anyone or to see through your tears. We don't know. But she didn't recognize him. Verse 15, woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? 
thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni. I don't have time to dig into it right now, but I love humor, right? Those of you who know me know that I kind of like joking around and I like humor. And I'm always looking for humor in Scripture, um, and you don't really see it all that often. And some people argue, they'll find these passages that describe Jesus, and they'll say, see, Jesus is making a joke here. And I'm like, I don't think so. He's talking about hell. I don't think that's funny. Or whatever. Anyway, what's interesting in this passage, and I don't know, I'm just, again, I'd love to dig into this at some point in time, but this seems to be a little bit of a glimpse of a joyful Jesus, right? I, I just love the fact that he goes, he you know, the, the angels are there, right, and Jesus is there, and he knows that, you know, she doesn't really recognize him, and so he says, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for, right? You can almost imagine Jesus sort of doing this with um, maybe, maybe a mischievous smile on his face, maybe a joyful smile on his face. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. And again, she thinks he's the gardener, and so she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll get him. And Jesus then just, again, in a word, he says, Mary, it's me, Mary. And again, at that moment, she recognizes that it is her Savior, right? And she turns toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni. And apparently, she throws her arms around him, and she's giving him a big hug. And it says, Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. And this word, do not hold on to me, is apt to, which means to cling to. So she was not letting go. Like, she was wrapped around Jesus, her Savior, and her friend. In other words, what Jesus says is, hey, we don't have time for this right now. This isn't the time to cling to me. We've got more work to do. And so he says in verse 17, go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my father and your father. Again, we don't have time to dig into this, but that's big. To my God and your God, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, right? Great scene, great picture. Now, let me call time out for a second. Let's go back to the angels just real quickly because it's easy to sort of pass over them. But let's go back to the angels for a moment. Can you imagine the initial confusion of the angels? Just think about it. Just imagine you sort of put yourself in their position. The greatest victory the world has ever known, the greatest victory the world has ever known has just occurred. They've had front row seats to this drama. Their king, the prince of heaven and earth, has been arrested falsely accused, beaten, and crucified, and they watched it all, right? Powerful, and yet without permission to engage. They just had to stand back and watch the drama. They watched as Jesus hung on the cross physically in misery, but spiritually even more terribly under the wrath of God as the sins of humanity were placed upon their king, Jesus. The angels may have wept as Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It would have been shocking to them. They may have clasped their hands over their mouths in shock as Jesus spoke the words, it is finished, and gave up his spirit. But they were also there when Jesus' heart beat for the first time in three days, and then beat again and beat again, bringing color to his ashen skin and warmth to his cold flesh. They were there when his eyes fluttered open. Surely, surely they jumped and cheered and wept for joy when the word of life sat up and rubbed death out of his eyes. 
the greatest feat of human history had just occurred. Sin and death, chaos had been conquered once and for all, and they saw every bit of it, right? So surely their confusion is justified when, with giant smiles on their faces, they ask Mary, why are you crying? Don't you realize what just happened? Why are you crying? She's almost certainly crushed by her grief, by her despair. She may be crushed by feeling like Jesus was a charlatan, that he was a fraud, that he pulled the wool over their eyes. But in just a moment of all moments in history, she would be elevated, she'd be buoyed by hope. That's what the resurrection provides. It provides hope, hope in a living Savior who can be known, hope in a living Savior who intercedes for us, hope in a living Savior who by his life, death, and resurrection has conquered both sin and death. Because of the resurrection, we can have hope. A couple years ago, I used this uh, illustration. I'm going to use it again because it's awesome. Um, There's a man named Bono who is the lead singer for U2. And uh, in 2009, he wrote an article for the New York Times uh, on Easter called, Do You Know Where Your Soul Is? Do You Know Where Your Soul Is? And uh, here's what he had to say. Then comes the dying and the living that is Easter. It's a transcendent moment for me, a rebirth I always seem to need, never more so than a few years ago when my father died. I recall the embarrassment and relief of hot tears as I knelt in a chapel in a village in France and repented of my prodigal nature, repented for fighting my father for so many years and wasting so many opportunities to know him better. I remember the feeling of a peace that passes understanding as a load lifted of all the Christian festivals. It's Easter. It's the Easter parade that demands the most, most faith, pushing you past reverence for creation through bewilderment at the idea of a virgin birth and into the far-fetched and far-reaching idea that death is not the end, right? It's a wonderful picture of Bono in this chapel in France, and realizing the relevance of the resurrection, not only for him, but for his father, that death is not the end. It's exactly the truth of Christianity. It's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He's addressing the Thessalonian church's fear over death, and he says this, for we do not grieve as those who have no hope. For we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We do grieve at death, Christians, right? We do grieve at death. We do grieve at disease. We grieve for the brokenness of the world, but we grieve with hope, with hope, hope that we, like Jesus, will rise from the dead. Our hope is much more, however, than just optimism or wishful thinking. It's a certainty. This is what J.I. Packer says. He says, optimism hopes for the best without any guarantee of its arriving and is often no more than whistling in the dark. Christian hope, by contrast, is faith looking ahead to the fulfillment of the promises of God. As when the Anglican burial service enters the corpse in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. 
The Christian expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it, he can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. Right? That's the Christian hope. Right? For those of you in the room who are maybe a little more traditional and historically inclined in terms of theology, the Heidelberg Catechism tells us this. He, it asks the question, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? And the answer is, first, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already now resurrected to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection. So did you hear what that said? Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection and our, the resurrection of those that we love. His resurrection guarantees that not only has death been defeated, but sin has been defeated as well. And finally, Jesus' resurrection means that we have a new life now because Jesus rose from the dead, we can have hope. So what do we do with the resurrection? We have hope if, if we believe that it's true, if we believe that it happened. What do we do? What else do we do with this idea of the resurrection? Let me answer that question with a, a quick illustration. So I went to Covenant College, which is a, a PCA, the PCA college up on Lookout Mountain, and then went to Covenant Seminary. And so for a large chunk of my life, I was deeply embedded in this sort of uh, idea of Reformed theology. And so I was around a lot of other people who were constantly debating Reformed theology and sort of in the, the depths of all of this stuff. It was great. I absolutely loved it. It was invaluable for me. But the result of that oftentimes led to theological snobbery, which I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm still prone to that to some degree, but we used to sort of just ridicule um, and, and give sort of certain people a hard time because they weren't as you know, intellectually astute as we were. And I realize now how immature um, that was and arrogant. But one of those people was Max Lucado. And so I, I apologize because back then I, we used to be like, oh, he's so cheesy. But it's funny now as I'm older, I realize that uh, in so many ways he's actually great, really, really great. And so I'm going to quote something that he had to say about Easter. And it, you'll, it feels and sounds like Max Lucado. But here's what he says. He says, you want to know the coolest thing about the coming that is Jesus coming? Not that the one who played marbles with the stars gave it up to play marbles with marbles, with actual marbles, or that the one who hung the galaxies gave it up to hang door jams to the displeasure of a cranky client who wanted everything yesterday but couldn't pay until tomorrow. Not that he in an instant went from needing nothing to needing air, food, a tub of hot water, and salts for his tired feet, more than anything, needing somebody, anybody, who was more concerned about where he would spend eternity than where he would spend Friday's paycheck, or that he resisted the urge to fry the two-bit self-appointed hall monitors of holiness who dared to suggest that he was doing the work of the devil. Not that he kept his cool while the dozen best friends he had ever uh, had felt the heat and got out of the kitchen, or that he gave no command to the angels who begged, just give us the nod, Lord. One word, and these demons will be deviled eggs. Not that he refused to defend himself when blamed for every sin of every slut and sailor since Adam, or that he stood silent as a million guilty verdicts echoed in the tribunal of heaven, and the giver of light was left in the chill of a sinner's night. 
Not even after three days in a dark hole, he stepped into the Easter sunrise with a smile and a swagger and a question for lowly Lucifer, is that your best punch? That was cool, incredibly cool, he said, but you want to know what the coolest thing about the one who gave up the crown of heaven for a crown of thorns is that he did it for you. I think we can't lose sight of that today, that this this, uh, entering of Jesus into skin and flesh and human history, that the living of this life and uh, the persecution and the, the punishment and the cross, the rejection, the being separated from God in whatever way, we don't know what that means, the wrath of God upon him, all of these things, all of that, and the resurrection was for you, right, to undo the curse of the fall, right? right? We've been separated from God the Father, and God the Father said, I want you, Jesus, to bring my children back to me. And so Jesus says, whatever it takes, and this is what it took in order to be brought back into a relationship with your heavenly Father. Your big brother Jesus fought for you to bring you back into a relationship with the Father. Now this morning, as you look around the room, you see tables on this right-hand side of the room, my right-hand side, there are tables with bread and with wine. On the left-hand side of the room, there are tables with bread and grape juice. And what these, um, these elements represent is this massive idea of the gospel. And this massive idea of the gospel is in very, very simple, simple words. It's this. It's that if you trust in Christ alone as your Savior then you are good with God, right? That he's not angry with you, right? He poured out his wrath on his son Jesus, but he's not angry with you, right? That you're no longer dead to him, but you're alive to him because of Jesus. And so if you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, you can believe when you take this bread and dip it in wine or dip it in grape juice that what's being declared is that once and for all, you have been made right with God because the life death and resurrection of his son Jesus is more than enough to cover over all of your sins, all of your rejection, all of your rebellion, past, present, and future. And it's not just enough to cover over your rebellion and your sin, past, present, and future, but it's enough to cover over all of the rebellion, all of the sin, all of the brokenness of all the people that will ever trust in Christ alone for their salvation. It's much bigger than your sin, right? And so I would invite you to come to the Lord's table today and to take this bread and to to dip it into the wine and to believe and to have hope. At the same time, if there are people here today that are not believers, that haven't come to that point, I would just simply ask that you sit back and watch as the children of God take part in that hope. And I would pray that maybe at some point that you too would enter into the hope of Jesus. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for your son, and I thank you for his appearance um, to Mary Magdalene, Father, and I thank you that we get to hear about you and hear about your son through her. I thank you that you chose to reveal yourself to her first. Father, I pray that you would choose to reveal yourself to us as well, Father. I pray that that might even be true today. I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Hear now the words of institution. For I received from the Lord 
what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.